God has a family and he calls it his church. It's a massive global community comprised of people of every race, social, economic background, color, and creed. And we are ACF Church, a specific tribe of God's family with a vision to see it be in Alaska as it is in heaven. We are not self-motivated, but spirit-motivated. And by his might, we work to see transformation in the lives of our community. You cannot buy our hearts because we are trading this world for the priceless prize that is in Christ. We are hopeful in a hope-starved world because Jesus has already conquered the world. And we fight. We fight hard for what is true and good and just in our midst. Why? Because Christ first fought for us. Why? Because love always tastes better than hatred. Why? Because time is short and the stakes are high. And we each have our own story. We are the church who see our state as a mission field for the expansion of the gospel. We are the unchurched who are seeking truth an authentic community in a Jesus-focused place. And we are the de-churched who have been broken by religion but have chosen to pursue God for who He is on His terms. So we amplify the grace that will change the world. It's who we are because God is alive. We are ACF Church. My name is Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at ACF Church. And you are coming at an awesome time to ACF. If you're new, Um, And maybe you're just showing up for the first time visiting, um, or you've been coming for a while. We've been going through a a four-week series, which we'll conclude today, uh, called We Are ACF. And it really is a series about who we are, what is our heartbeat as a church. And we're going through four of our core values uh, as a church that we believe here at ACF that God has called us to be as a community uh, here in Eagle River. So uh, the first week we talked about better together. Life is better together. We can go it alone but we believe that it's so much better when you have other people to lean on, to challenge you, to encourage you, uh, to lift you up. Uh, The second week, uh, we talked about life is a mission and not a vacation. We believe that God has called ACF Church to amplify the grace of Jesus to the church, the unchurched, and the de-churched. And that means that we can't just huddle in here and show grace and love to each other, that we have to take it out with us into our community, into the world. And that's a bigger task uh, than than, uh, we can accomplish alone. Uh, last week, Brian, uh, Pastor Brian talked about we are contributors, not uh, consumers, and that ACF is not a product to be consumed, uh, but we are a family on a mission. And that mission is big, so big that not any one of us or any, just a few of us can accomplish it alone, that we have to come together and, and bear with that burden together um, into our community or else we won't be able to accomplish what God has called us to do. Uh, so this week, we're going to continue on in our uh, four values, and the value today we're going to look at is we lead the way in generosity, uh, that we believe that God has called us to lead the way uh, in generosity. And because it's Father's Day, I wanted to start off with uh, some talking about my kids, a, a dad's stories, and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my failure as a dad a little bit, um, and embarrass my kids, of course, because I get to, because why not? But there's something, if you're a parent, there's really something about listening to other people share about their failures as a dad that kind of gives you some internal reassurance, like, okay, I'm not so bad because you're so much worse. So I hope you'll, you'll feel that. Um, I laughed because Pastor Brian posted yesterday one of his parenting fails, uh, and then people started posting theirs, as, you know, it just got kind of snowballed, and it was just awesome. I kept checking back in throughout the day, like, okay, who else really screwed up bad? Um, and if you're not a parent, uh, so if you are a parent, maybe I'll give you something to smile about today and feel good about yourself. If you're, if you're not a parent, uh, just listen up. Maybe you'll be a parent someday, um, and you can 
avoid some of the, this thing. Um, or, uh, this is to be honest, the people we work with a lot of time can be like children, so you'll have a lot of things to apply to the, where you work, so in real daily life. So when you're a failure as a dad, um, I was a failure a few weeks ago. I didn't, hadn't spent much time with my kids. And when you don't spend a lot of time with your kids, you kind of feel guilty about that, and I did. Because um, I, have, I have five little girls. I have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, 7-year-old, a 3-year-old, and a 1-year-old. Um, all girls. And yeah, if you know me, you, I, I'm super proud of my family. I love my girls. There's a lot of drama going on in my household, but I, I've come to embrace it and not run from it most of the time. Sometimes I just go hide. Um, that's why I have a camouflage Jeep, because I have to have a place to go, a happy place in life. Um, so I hadn't spent much time with them, and I knew it, and I could see it in their eyes, and I just felt horrible as a dad. So what I did was, and you know when you don't do that, you, the natural response, and I know this is bad, if you're a, psych, a psychologist, you're going to be like, you're ruining your kids for life. I just decided to like, throw them in my car and say, hey, we're going to go down to the, we live up off Peter's Creek, we're going to go to Chevron, I'm going to buy you any snack you want. So you just buy your kids affection. I mean, that's the way you do it, right? So... Um, I didn't take the one-year-old because, let's face it, you l l let her loose in a Chevron, it's, just, it's not going to be a good, good sight. So we left her at home, but we decided to get something for her. But my other four kids, we jumped in the, the car, we drove down to the Chevron, and we spent like half an hour going through Chevron. I said, any snack in the store you can buy. Like, they were, just, they were on cloud nine. They loved it. Um, one of my kids, who is obsessed with um, anything tomato-based, so lasagna is her favorite thing. I, I find her in the family aisle there. If you've ever been there, they have like canned foods and stuff. They, it's kind of a, a well-equipped Chevron station. They, they're on it. So she picks up this family-sized can of SpaghettiOs. She's like, Dad! I'm like, no. Don't waste your snack bonus on SpaghettiOs. So then she like keeps looking for a while, and she like comes up with the ketchup bottle, giant ketchup bottle. <laughs> and I whisper to her, we buy that for you as parents. Like, you, that's good, a given. You don't need to waste your snack on that. Um, so we spend another, like, forever, because this kid in particular, though, is like me. Too many decisions, and it takes forever to make one, right? So I, I don't like making the decision. I just want you to tell me what to do, and I will drive at that. That's how my personality works. But, and she's the same way. She, you give her, just pick anything, and it will take forever. So we end up taking, they all find their snacks. My other girls, like, they know what they're going to get. They, like, zero in on the candy aisle, and they're getting the sour stuff and, you know, whatever. So they got their favorite thing. We buy it, we go home, we're sitting around the table, now we got the one-year-old. The one-year-old is literally coming over to me with her snack and putting pieces into my mouth. Like, she just wants to share it. She doesn't care if she even gets any. She's just, like, more, more excited that she's feeding dad, right? So I'm, I'm loving it. Um, my three-year-old, if you ask her, and her sisters figured this out, hey, could I have some? Yes. You know, she's wanting to eat it. She really wants to, and somewhere in the, in the whole thing, she realizes that her sisters are totally taking advantage of her. That they're just totally, can I have some? Yes. Can I have some? Yes. She never says no. She's just got a clean, pure heart, uh, just like me. And <laughs> my other three, my 11, my 9, and my, why'd you guys laugh at that? And a 7-year-old, they're over there doing what I, I grew up with brothers, two brothers, and this is how we ate. You know, you got the fork in the hand, like you're ready for defense if you need it. Um, you had, it was for survival. And they, they kind of realized, this is my snack. And I had to ask, hey, could I have some? Could I try that? No, you said it was ours. Yes, I did. So they were like, zero, no, not going to share, even though they were expecting the three-year-old to come, and they were totally using her on that thing. Um, I just noticed, and, okay, so I, I got to be, um, throw them, not, I don't want to throw them off the, under the bus. I'm trying to, what, what analogy? I don't want to throw them under the bus totally, because when they were one and three, they did the same thing. 
It's just a stage of life that people go through. Um, some people never outgrow that, though, but we take advantage of them all the time. But they get it from my wife's side. I'm pretty sure the selfish kids. It's got to be from the... She's here, so I'm going to say, no, it's me. It's totally me. And I'm, I, I think... So I got kids that are... And I think we're like this. I got kids that are like absolutely over-the-top generous, and I got kids that are just more like me, that are like, we kind of, I don't know, we, we learn from our culture, we learn that we can say no, we learn that we can be selfish, right? And so that's our culture, that's what we're used to. But my, my one and my three-year-old haven't figured that out yet. They're still super generous, right? So as we talk about leading the way in generosity, I want to kind of make sure we're clear on what generosity is and maybe what it isn't. And so I went to the, the most reliable source I could find, uh, which was just Googling it on the internet, um, and I found a great definition. It was it was this, generosity is showing a readiness to give more of something than is strictly necessary or expected. Generosity is showing a readiness to give more of something than is, necessary or than is strictly necessary or expected. So if we're just giving what's necessary or what's expected, even if we're meeting a need that someone has, we're not being generous. That just got real. So you can write this down. Before the first point, write this down. I was going to make it my first point, but it was so negative sounding, I didn't want to make it the first point. But it still kind of is, so I want you to write it down. It's important to know. Doing what's necessary or expected is not generosity. Doing what's necessary or expected is not generosity. Generosity is always going above and beyond what's expected. It's, doing what, it's not doing what everybody else would do given the same circumstance. It's doing more. It's not doing the minimum to get by in life. It's doing something out of the ordinary and over the top. Okay, so we're going to go look into the scriptures. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 4. Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up. It's going to be on the screen behind me, so don't panic. Um, you can open up your, your phone app, your Bible program, and you can look it up there. I want to challenge you to something today, though, because I struggled for years. I grew up in the church, and I still struggled finding books in the Bible. The, the pastor would say, turn to whatever book, and I'm like, ah. Um, I was too embarrassed to look in the index and didn't want to do that, and so I would just kind of flip, and maybe just as soon as you start reading, I'd stop and pretend I was there. The only way that I actually learned where they were was to get a physical Bible and continue to struggle with it until I, I figured it out. Um, so I'm going to challenge you today. There's a Bible somewhere nearby under a seat. Grab one and go ahead and start flipping, and don't be embarrassed. Don't let, you know, people may stare at you like, why are you spending so much time trying to find this? Do it, because the more familiar you are with it, the more you're likely to read and understand it. So a little help there, maybe a little challenge. So I challenge you to that. So 1 John chapter 4, and starting in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, that's so, so encouraging on Father's Day. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it starts off, we love because he, God, first loved us. And God gave us some proof. Okay, so that's 1 John. And you find 1 John, maybe you're, you're still looking for it. This always confused me, so I'll, I'll, this isn't part of the sermon. But 1 John is all the way at the back of the Bible. There's the, the Gospel of John, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. And then 1 John is not the same as John. It's all the way, if you open your Bible from the, the right side, the, the end, there may be an index there, or you may be in the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. Keep going left, you'll pass Jude, you're going to hit 3 John, 2 John, and then 1 John. 
So that was 1 John. Now we're going to turn to the book of John, which is now way over to the left. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And just a side note, I can never say it, any of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, without saying it in order and then saying, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bless this bed I lay upon. And I don't know why. I just heard it somewhere, and that's what I always say in my head. I'm a 48-year-old man, and I'm still saying silly stuff in my head. So um, we're going to go to Book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. It, you may have seen that at sporting events. People writing that on their, their cheeks. You know, if you're Tim Tebow or if you're John Cena, you got the T-shirt. Um, maybe signs in the end zone of NFL, John 3.16. But it's an important verse because it shows us there's proof that God loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You might say it, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God took the initiative and showed us what that looked like, showed us what generosity looked like. He didn't wait till we were perfect or got our act together. From eternity past, he chose us, which is pretty incredible. And I want to say today that if you have not yet said yes to Jesus, you can do that while I'm talking today. If, if you know God's been working on your heart, all you have to do is, is, it says here, believe. Believe in Jesus. Maybe that's you today. So just, you can take that opportunity and do that. Okay, now we're going to go over to Ephesians. I'm going to give your fingers a workout in, in the Bible here. So Ephesians. And so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then we have what I call God Eats Popcorn, which is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we're going to go to the E, which is eats, of God Eats Popcorn. Again, I, I don't know. It's just always in my head. That's the way I learned it, and it's worked for me for all these years. Maybe it'll help you a little bit. Now you'll say it all the time, too. Now I want popcorn for Father's Day. Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 uh, through 10. Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, res- not as, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, just showing and demonstrating that God took the initiative in generosity. He, demonstrate what it looks, he demonstrated what it looks like to lead the way in generosity. There's two conclusions that I really want to draw from these three passages that we've looked at pretty quickly. The first is that God initiated our relationship with him in love. That was, that's how he formed it. That's how he, he founded our relationship with him. And the second thing the, and this is, this is kind of maybe where it, for me, was really hard um, to struggle with this week. How we treat others is a measure of how we love God. How we treat others is a measure of how we love God. God set an amazing example for us of what it looks like to love generously. And then he said, go and love other people like that. You can fill this in on your, on your notes if you're, if you're following along. If we have experienced the generous love of God, we will respond by reflecting that same generous love towards other people or towards others. If we have experienced that in our own lives, we're going to want to push it out into other people's lives. If we fail to love others generously like God has loved us, then we're not following Jesus' example in our lives. To take it a step further, God is asking us to express his generous love to others the way he wants them to see him 
and to be loved by him. God is using us as his, his way to love other people around us. Go back over to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Bless us, better lay upon. John, chapter 13, starting in verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One of the teachers I had in school, a guy named Tom Constable, he said it this way. He said, God manifests his love among us as we love each other. God manifests his love among us as we love each other. It would be awesome, I think, if we could go back 2,000 some years and see Jesus walking the streets of Jerusalem, right? That would be really cool. You could go see how he loves people. You could maybe contact and, and talk with Jesus face to face, like we could have a conversation and we could feel and understand the love that he has for us but we can't do that so how does God love us God loves us by the way you treat me I will experience the love of God by the way I treat you you'll experience the love of God that's a lot of responsibility and that's a hard thing to to do right it's easy to say but it, it can be a really challenging thing to do but your family is going to experience God's love for them by how generous you love and how well you love them. Your neighbors and your coworkers, the world around you, they will experience God's love for them by how generous you are and the way you love them and how well you love them. You don't have to turn there, but we, we start off in 1 John chapter 4. And in verse 20, it, it says this If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's easy to claim that we love God. I can claim it all day long. But the proof is in how I treat other people, how generous I am as a response to the love I've received from God. So, so what does over-the-top generous love look like? Because I think we can all agree that God, God has shown us over-the-top generous love, and then he's asking us to show that same love to the world around us, to each other, to the people you're sitting next to right now, the people that you'll go interact with this week. But what does that look like? And this is where, for me, it maybe, it, it, it got up all in my face this week as I was trying to prepare for today, and it may get up a little bit in yours as well. So I'm just giving you some fair warning um, that that's kind of where we're headed. So I want to look at three aspects of generous, over-the-top, crazy love and what it looks like practically. So the first area that I wanna look at is giving, in the area of giving, and I don't wanna talk about money, although we are called in scripture to be super generous with our, our money and our finances, uh, but I wanna talk about energy and time, the energy and time that we have, and what that generous, look, uh, generous giving would look like. So if you, if you have your Bible, Luke, go over to Luke chapter six, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, I can't even say Luke without saying John at the end. Luke chapter 6, starting verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And actually, I want to, I want to stop. Have you ever had, were you in, can, remember, can you remember back to kindergarten? Did you ever have a teacher who said, if you can hear the sound of my voice, clap your hands? Right? Did you have one? Anyone? All right, we're going to try it. If you hear the sound of my voice, clap your hands one time. If you can hear the sound of my voice, clap your hands two times. If you can hear the sound of my voice, clap your hands three times. 
you guys are good. And you can hear my voice because I, I, I have proof. You clapped your hands, right? And the teachers use this as a way to focus. I'm reading Jesus' words right now. And Jesus said, if you could hear my words, then I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you if you can hear me. So you all heard. So you, now you're hearing Jesus' words. So he's, uh, this is for me because whenever I'm sitting in church, I just want to make sure we're clear. A lot of times I'm thinking of the person who should be sitting next to me that needs to hear this message. Right? I'm not thinking about this applies to me. I've, I've got this down. And so it's, it's about somebody else. And so I spend the rest of the sermon like trying to take notes for them. Like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm having a conversation with them later, and this is what I want to, oh, my pastor said this. Or, oh, you, you got to get the podcast because this is important. You should hear this. You're struggling, clearly. No, Jesus is saying it's not just for your neighbor who needs to hear it. It's for you. If you can hear his voice, it's for you. So I just want to make sure that we're super clear on that first line. We don't want to just skip over that. It's for all of us. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Okay, so let's just stop here because I don't have a cloak or a tunic. And I don't know about you guys, but I didn't see that over at Nordstrom's. And a cloak is just like an outer cover, a a jacket. Let's let's be Alaskan here. It's going to be your outer jacket. And a tunic is going to be your shirt. So... You've got a cloak and a tunic, right? So you've got a shirt and a jacket. If someone wants your, your jacket, give them your, your shirt also. And I'm lost where I am. Okay, verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. It's a crazy list of challenging actions, right? If we went out of here and put these into practice, it would be a, a hard thing to actually do. But that's being truly generous. It's out of the ordinary. It's, it's not culturally normal to do these things in a culture that says if somebody wrongs you, you have every right to walk away from them. You have every right to get them back, to be vengeful. But it's a whole different way of thinking. And he, he ends it with, I love, in verse uh, 35 and 36, kind of why. Why should we be so insanely generous in our giving? It says, for, for he, or God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. God himself gives us the example. He says, you guys, me, you, us, none of us, you guys didn't deserve mercy from God, but he gave it. He chose from eternity past to love you, to offer his son as a way for you to make amends in that relationship with God so you could be in a relationship with the God who created you. God set that example. When we didn't earn it, we can't earn it. And I hope that gives you some comfort here today. You can't unearn it either. He made a choice. His love is a choice. He chose to show mercy, not just on people who were kind and believed in in Jesus, but it says here on everybody, even people that didn't like God, he still shows mercy on them. So we're really told to, to love when it's not expected, to give when it's not convenient, to give to those around us in such a way that will raise eyebrows. 
So you can write this in, uh, fill this in. God calls us to set the culture around us and not follow it. God calls us to set the culture and not just follow it. He wants, God wants to blow the socks off of people around us in the way that we give generously. I want to turn over quickly to Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And it kind of repeats a little bit the feel about what we just read. Some just some crazy ideas of how to give generously. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So a lot of these things are fairly similar sounding to what we just read over in Luke, right? But there's one that I want to focus on, and it's in verse 41. It says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's where we get the phrase, go the extra mile. And in, in that time, the, Rome, the Romans were in charge, and they, they had military around. They were ruling this, the, the nation of Israel. Um, and the Jews were obligated under law to carry the baggage or backpacks or any of the goods of any of the Romans um, up to a maximum. They set a limit up to a, ma- a maximum of a mile, right? Uh, but they couldn't refuse it. They had to do that if they were asked. And if it was me, if they were today, you know what I'd be doing? I'd be on my iPhone looking for like the one mile app and then I'd be, okay, yep, I'll carry your stuff. And at one mile exactly, not a centimeter more, I'm like, it'd beep and go off and tell me to drop the bags and boop, done. And I'd be like, see ya. I met my obligation, right? But Jesus is telling uh, his followers to do something completely radical and countercultural. Go within that extra mile, double it, blow their socks off. They're gonna start wondering what's going on in your life. He's, Jesus is really just teaching us a crazy generosity that was nothing like what they had ever heard before. But we need to be careful, I think, here because we can get into legalism. And really, I think legalism is doing all these good things. You can go through this list and kind of, we can start the check, checklist, right, of all the good stuff we should be doing, but we're not really connected to God. We don't have that connection to God, the, who is love, so that we can then reflect that love out. And that could be legalism. That's, that, that's burdensome, that's tiring, that's hard, that, that frustrates us because we're doing it from a position of just getting the task done and not because we're connected to God. Okay, show of hands again. I'd like to participate a little bit. How many of you have ever loaned one of your cars out to somebody? Okay. How many of you ever loaned your car out to somebody and got it back with no gas in it? Or less than you loaned it to them with? And you know, because you check, I check. Oops, sorry. How did it make you feel? You excited? Like, I, I want to loan the car out again to this person? You, know, you kind of like, a little anger inside, a little bit like, you know, I know I agreed to loan you my car, but, and I'm being a nice person, and I, I'm, I'm wrestling now with like how you were kind of, I felt like ungrateful that I loaned you my car. Because what's the very least that's kind of expected about loaning your car out? At least they're going to put the, right amount, the same amount of gas as you gave it to them. Have you ever loaned your car out and gotten a full tank back? Yeah. What about, have you ever loaned your car out, gotten a full tank back, they ran it through the car wash, and then they uh, vacuumed and detailed the inside for you before they gave it back to you? I've had a couple of people in my life do that, and I can tell you who they are, because I remember it. It stands out. I can't tell you all the people that borrowed my car and didn't bring it back with, with gas in it. I have no idea. 
but I can certainly tell you the people that stood out that went above and beyond in their ability to give. Kind of a radical love, and that's what Jesus is calling us to, the way that we interact with other people. It should stand out. So I want you to write on your paper. It's not on there, but write it down. Uh, there's maybe something for later on to think about or, or talk about with your, with your uh, significant other or just uh, friends. What, what does generous giving look like to you? What does generous giving look like to you? So the second area that I want to look at, kind of subcategory of generous love, which is what we're talking about, we had giving. Now I want to look at serving. And serving is a little bit different. It's a lot like giving, but it really is kind of a voluntary um, seeking out ways to demonstrate God's radical generosity um, towards other people. So I want to look, start in uh, Philippians, which is the pop of popcorn. If you're got to eat popcorn, then it's this Philippians, so the P in Philippians. Chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, who was God, who we're told later in Scripture, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus came down to earth as a human being. You can think about that for a second. God himself is now a human being. And not just any human being. He could have come down and been a ruler, right? But he came down and served. We're told that here in Ephesians. Again, God sets the example of what it looks like to be generous. And here as a servant. And the word in the Greek, which is the language this part of scripture was originally written in, is doulos. There's nothing magical about that word, but it carries with it kind of the idea of a bond servant. And, and what is that? It, you can become a servant of somebody else at the time when he's talking, maybe one of two ways. The first is you're poor, you don't have a lot of money, and you want an education or you want something, but you don't have a way to get it. So you find somebody who does, and you agree to be a slave to them, to serve them for a certain amount of time so that they'll edu- pay for your education or they'll buy, give you the money for what you want. So you're voluntarily just entering into that contract. You could also find yourself at the time a bondservant to somebody else because you maybe borrowed money from somebody or borrowed something and things went really bad. And now you owe them, but you have no method to pay them back. So you have to go to them and humbly ask, can I serve you? Can I, can I be part of your, your, your group um, and for whatever time that is until it's paid off? So you can find yourself in those things. Either way, it's really putting someone else's desire over your own desire. It's making that choice to do that. Christ set the example. Not only it says here in the passage that he was faithful even to death on a cross, uh, that he willingly laid his life down, but also while he was alive. I just remember the passage where he's washing the disciples' feet. Um, And I don't know about you, I got... We got shoes all in up in our house. I don't know why in Alaska they design these split level things where you walk in and you got like two square feet to walk in your house and we got seven people coming in and our shoes are everywhere and they reek. They're horrible. And Jesus sets the example, not just mine, I can tell you little girl's feet stink. Um, (laughs) Jesus sets the example. I didn't stink any less back in his day, probably more. But he washes, he says, this is, I'm going to show you what it looks like to serve somebody else. You can write this and fill this in. God does not force us to serve, but our connection to God will compel us to serve. 
God does not force us, but if we are connected to God, we will be compelled to serve generously. Um, I used to be a youth pastor um, back in Tucson, Arizona, and it's hot right now. I don't know what the temperature actually is today, but it's got to be north of 100 degrees, which I just can't even fathom anymore after spending almost three years here in Alaska. Uh, it's just, I, that, that kind of temperature is just insane. Um, we, at the time when I first married my wife, um, we were in a little track home in Tucson, and nobody has grass, not nobody, very few people have grass in Tucson because it's hard to keep alive. Here, if you don't take care of something, it's going to turn into grass. Um, it just happens naturally. And like every week I'm out mowing my lawn, and I'm like, wow, this is insane. It's like insane huge. I don't know how things grow so fast here. Tucson, you have to water them like crazy. They have these things. I know if you're from Alaska, you won't even know what this is. They have these things called sprinkler systems. Um, <laughs> where you bury pipes in the ground, you connect it to your water supply through a manifold and some control valves that automatically waters your lawn at least twice a day in the summer. Otherwise, it turns into just dirt again. So you have to fight every minute. And our water bill was insane. It was like three to 500 bucks a month during the summer uh, to keep our grass alive, which I laugh here because my, my water bill is 55 bucks a month and I can use as much as I want. It's awesome. Um, I love Alaska. So I was putting this, it didn't have grass, it had rocks. So I, I started reshaping my backyard and moving dirt around and getting rid of rocks and um, bringing in topsoil. And then you gotta dig all the trenches for the water lines and then you gotta buy all the materials and start putting that together. Well, we, it was really not in good shape and I had planned a vacation so my, my family and I took off. Um, I've been working with, because I was a youth pastor, a couple of the high school kids, two high school kids in particular. They've been coming over and helping me out. Um, well, on vacation, I get a picture text to me, and the picture is my backyard completely finished um, with the sprinkler system and everything installed. These kids had gone out in the heat of the summer and spent a week, while I was enjoying you know, California um, on the beach, they were working in my backyard making sure I had a sprinkler system for my grass. This is not like gospel you know, eternity work going on, but why did they do it? They did it because they were connected to a God who loved them so much that they were compelled to serve me. I was blown away. I, I hope you, can see, um, you would be blown away too. That kind of service stands out, just like radical, generous giving stands out. So write this on your paper if you would, maybe for later discussion. What does generous serving look like to you? What does generous serving look like to you? So we, we've looked at Generous love, we've looked at generous giving, we've looked at generous serving, and now I want to look at one that I think we, I struggle with a lot, and maybe we all struggle together in this, and I, I think it's one that is hard for us. It's generous forgiving. Generous forgiving is what I want to look at next. I want to read you a true story about two guys, <clears throat> excuse me, who lived in New York in the 1880s. Hyman Sarner, who owned property at the corner of Lexington Avenue and 43rd Street in New York, wanted to build apartments there. He owned the entire corner lot except a very narrow strip on the Lexington side that measured 104 feet by 5 feet wide. He approached Joseph Richardson, the owner of the useless lot, and offered him a thousand bucks for it so his residents could enjoy a prized street overlook. Richardson was offended by his offer thinking that it was worth $5,000. He called Sarner a tightwad and slammed the door on him in disgust. Sarner went ahead with his apartments, 
on all but the five-foot-wide section owned by Richardson. Once completed, Richardson noted that the side facing Lexington and overlooking the narrow property had numerous windows. He proceeded to hire an architect to design, and he eventually built a four-story house with the dimensions 104 feet long, five feet wide, to block the entire side of Sarner's apartment from ever seeing the light of day. And I think we have a picture. You can see the white window shades, that's the apartment, and that little thing on the right side, that's nice brick, really tiny, that's uh, Richardson's house. Richardson lived in this odd house that was nicknamed the Spite House from that point until his death in 1897, almost 15 years for what he believed was a deserving offense towards him from Sarner. You guys, our ability to hold a grudge and not forgive is unmatched, right? We are super, I am, let me just be, be honest and speak about me. I'm not going to speak about you, but I think we share this trait. If I was alive then and I had the 104 foot by 5 foot, I'd be doing the same thing. I think I'd be Mr. Richardson, kind of thumbing my nose at Mr. Sarner for offending me, right? I don't think I'd be quick to forgive that. I think God knew that we were a lot like that too. I don't think he's just speaking to me. I want you to open up to Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 18, because God knew we had struggled with it so much that Jesus gives us a very uh, pointed story about forgiveness. He gives us a story to illustrate what radical, generous forgiving looks like. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, so one of Jesus' disciples is talking, and he says, Peter comes up and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So let's, let's stop. At the time, the Jewish expectation culturally, you had to forgive somebody once if they asked for forgiveness. Two would be like, yeah, you're a good person. That's, that's a little bit better than, than most. Three was considered like outrageous, like no, if you did three, you were like the best forgiver in the crowd, right? So Peter comes up and he throws out a number seven, thinking that Jesus is going to be like, dude, you are like the king forgiver. I'm going to use you as an example about what forgiveness looks like. And Jesus goes, nope. In typical Jesus fashion, he goes, let me, let me define what that looks like, 77 times. And if you're like me, though, I'm like, now I'm getting my 77, you know, forgiveness app out, and I'm like, keeping track on you. I'm like, okay, 77 times, you know, my wife, okay, well, you're at 78, so we're done. Like, I no longer will forgive you. I'm staying with you, but I'm not happy anymore about this thing because I don't have to forgive anyone. Jesus said 77 times. And we live in a culture like that, right? The letter of the law rules because that's what our culture does really well. That's what we do really well. Jesus isn't trying to make a rule for us to follow as much as he's trying to give us a concept to understand. If... In, in the society they were in, if three times forgiveness was, was extreme, seven times that Peter throws out would have been insanely extreme, would have stood out. Jesus throws out 77 to say, just keep forgiving. Keep showing grace and forgiveness to people. And then he gives us a story to illustrate it. In case you think I'm just making this up, that it really is 70. Jesus said 77 times. It's in the original. It's like, that's a number he threw out, so I only have to forgive 77 times. Let's look at his illustration that immediately follows right here. In verse 23, it says, Jesus, uh, it says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. <clears throat> Excuse me. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And these words sound familiar. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had take, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have, also, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the first thing is I hear that story is I go, what's, what's a talent and what's a denarii? Like that's, I just have a weird mind. Like I get into this stuff. I geek out on stuff like this. Because we don't, I don't know, what's, what's 10,000 talents? I don't know what that compares to 100 denarii, which is what they use. The two servants owe something. So a talent is a unit of weight. It's a, it's a, measure, it's a, a value of, based on weight. So one talent is 75 pounds of silver or gold. We're not told which it is here, but it's one of those. So we'll just go with silver um, because it's, easy, it's super easy and it's a lower number. So we'll see what the low number of these two stories is. So one talent, 75 pounds of silver. Silver today is just right around 16 pounds or $16 an ounce. <clears throat> so remember you... All those times in math class, you're like, I'm never going to use word problems. Here in church, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, so 75 pounds times 16 ounces, because there's 16 ounces in a pound, times $16 an ounce, times 10,000 is $192 million. So the first servant owes the king $192 million bucks. If it's silver, if it's gold, it's, now you're up to the billions. So you can just go calculate that one out yourself based on the current price of gold at 72 or 75 pounds uh, per talent. So one denarii is, it's a different measure. It's not a weight. Uh, a denarii is one day's wage for a common laborer. So you work for a day, and that's what a typical laborer would get. So the Alaska minimum wage, $9.84 an hour. Last I looked it up. So $9.84 an hour times eight hours a day, and you're going to get, what, $78.72 for one day's wage. So that's a denarii, but it's 100 of those, so... It's $7,872 is what the second servant owes the servant who had been forgiven $192 million. If you're a servant and you owe 190, did anybody have $192 million with you today? You could write a check to ACF, that'd be awesome. Or better yet, to, to Pastor Stewart, care of ACF, that would be better. Um, I would love that. No, a servant, most, I couldn't pay that. Um, maybe you can, but a common, common servant, which they both are, they're servants to this king. One's a servant to the king, the other's a servant to a servant. <clears throat> he could never pay that back, and that's Jesus' point. He owed a debt that could never be paid back. But he begged for mercy, and, God gave, and the king gave him mercy, right? We owe God a, a debt we can never repay. We have rebelled against God from our youth, and that's called sin, and we can't, we can't get out of it. We owe 
we owe, what is the wages of sin? We're told in scripture is death. Jesus paid that price. God in his mercy overlooks that because of what Jesus Christ did. So how should we forgive? If God has forgiven us so much, how should we forgive other people? Our forgiveness of others should stand out in bold contrast to our culture. We shouldn't look like the eye for an eye, the, the spite house idea. We shouldn't be trying to get venge, uh, vengeful on people. Our first reaction should be to forgive if we have received that forgiveness from God. Again, we have to be connected. I want to read to you another true story <clears throat> of a young lady named Immaculate Ilibegiza. It's easy for me to say, right? Um, and I have a picture that I want to put up of her, and you'll see why she's She's the one circled, and um, this is when she's older. Um, looks like she's in a shower, and you're going to see why um, as we read this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Immaculate was born and raised in a small village in Rwanda, Africa. She enjoyed a peaceful childhood with her loving parents and three brothers. Education was very important in her household, so it was no surprise that she did well in school and went on to the National University of Rwanda to study electrical and mechanical engineering. It was while home from school on Easter break in 1994 that Immaculate's life was transformed forever. On April 6th of that year, the Rwandan president's plane was shot down over the capital of Kigali. The assassination of the Hutu president sparked months of massacres by Tutsi tribe members throughout the country. Not even small rural communities like Immaculate's were spared from the house, were spared from the house-to-house -house slaughter of men, women, and children. To protect his only daughter from rape and murder, Immaculate's father told her to run to a local pastor's house for protection. The pastor quickly sheltered Immaculate's, Immaculate and seven other women in a hidden three-foot by four-foot bathroom for 91 days. I struggled through this story all three times I've preached, and it's because I think for Father's Day, I picked a horrible story about a daughter running for her life as a, a dad is slaughtered. Um, but it illustrates something, so bear with me. For 91 days, Immaculate and the other women huddled silently in the small room while the genocide raged outside the home and throughout the country. While in hiding, anger and resentment were destroying Immaculate's mind, body, and spirit. It was then that Immaculate turned to prayer. Prior to going to the pastor's home, Immaculate's father, a devout Catholic, gave her a set of rosary beads. She began to pray the rosary as a way of drowning out the anger inside her and the evil outside the house. It was that turning point towards God and away from hate that saved Immaculate. In addition to finding faith, peace, and hope, during these three months of hiding, Immaculate also taught herself English. Immaculate was always a good student, already fluent in Kinyarwanda and French. Only, using only a Bible and a dictionary, she spent countless hours in that cramped bathroom learning her third language. After 91 days, Immaculate was finally liberated from her hiding place, only to face a horrific reality. Immaculate emerged from that small bathroom weighing just 65 pounds. And finding her entire family brutally murdered. With the exception of one brother who was studying abroad, 
She also found nearly one million of her extended family, friends, neighbors, and fellow Rwandans massacred. After the genocide, Immaculate came face to face with the man who killed her mother and one of her brothers. After enduring months of physical, mental, and spiritual suffering, she was still able to offer the unthinkable, telling the man, I forgive you. In 1998, Immaculate immigrated to, from Rwanda to the United States, where she continued her work for peace through the United Nations. During that time, she shared her story with her coworkers and friends who were impacted by her testimony, so impacted by her testimony that they insisted she write it down. Three days after finishing her manuscript, she met best-selling author Dr. Wayne Dyer, who within minutes of meeting her offered to publish her book. Dyer is quoted as saying, there is something much more than charisma at work here. Immaculate not only writes and speaks about unconditional love and forgiveness, but she radiates it wherever she goes. So write this on the bottom of your paper, if you would. Something to talk about and to think through. What does generous forgiveness look like for you? What does generous, over-the-top forgiveness look like for you? Is there a grudge that you're holding on to that is keeping you from taking your next step in your walk with Jesus? We're called to love uncommonly, to forgive uncommonly, to serve uncommonly, and to give uncommonly. We're called to lead the way in generosity in a way that reflects what we ourselves have received from God through Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who took the initiative to show us love, to show us mercy, to show what generous love looks like, generous giving, generous serving, generous forgiving. Lord, you have forgiven more than we could ever repay, and yet we, I think, I know I hold on to petty things with my brothers and sisters. Lord, would you help me to find, would you help me to find the place and the strength to give, to serve, to forgive, and to love generously, to love unlike our culture, but to extend it, to be proactive, to voluntarily choose to be generous when it's hard, to be generous when it's not expected. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who doesn't just ask us to do, uh, do these things, but Lord, you have shown us the example through Jesus Christ. You have shown us time and again through history that you are a God who is full of love and grace and truth and that you yourself have given us these things. Lord, as we connect with you, would you help us to shine these things brightly to each other into a world that desperately needs to see generosity like nothing else. We love you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.